Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis. Welcome to my podcast, Money Talk, for Thursday, the 20th of July. We're one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and also now in Singapore. So thank you very much for your support. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, UK inflation eased more than expected to a 15-month low of 7.9% in June and slightly below the market consensus of 8.2%, mainly due to a slump in fuel prices. The core rate, which excludes volatile items such as energy and food, eased to 6.9% from May's 31-year high of 7.1%. China's Commerce Ministry on Wednesday said non-economic factors were growing and interfering with the country's foreign trade, which was facing an extremely severe situation in the second half of this year. Li Qingquan, the head of the ministry's external trade department, said some countries are forcefully pushing for decoupling, severing supply chains and so-called de-risking, which are human-made obstacles blocking normal commerce. The dollar value of China's exports plunged 12.4% in June from a year ago. The US and China have agreed to resume stalled talks over global warming as the world's two largest polluters attempt to re-engage after a year of rising bilateral tensions. Speaking in Beijing, at the end of a four-day trip during which he met senior Chinese leaders, US climate envoy John Kerry said climate change is a universal threat that should be handled separately from broader diplomatic issues. And Russia said Wednesday it will designate all Black Sea vessels heading to Ukraine's ports as military threats, potentially increasing pressure on grain prices and threatening global food supply. Russia has pulled out of a deal guaranteeing safe passage for exports across the Black Sea and it follows two consecutive nights of Russian airstrikes on Ukraine's Odessa region ports which have destroyed 60,000 tonnes of grain and damaged storage infrastructure. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Alex Rue McMillan, a freelance writer and Asia columnist for TheStreet.com. And we're also going to talk about Asia's frontier markets with Rushir Desai of Asia Frontier Capital. If you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, which is where you can find my daily newsletter, which is full of business and financial information from around Asia. On Wall Street, U.S. stocks closed higher Wednesday after earnings reports from several regional banks and easing inflation in the U.K. reassured investors. The Dow logged its eighth straight session of gains. That's its longest winning streak since September 2019. The Dow traded 109 points higher, or 0.3%, to close at 35,061. The S&P 500 climbed 0.2% to 4,566. The Nasdaq Composite added under 0.1% to finish the session at 14,358. Chinese markets fell on disappointment over China's 11-point plan to boost consumption of household consumer goods and services, which many economists say lacks concrete steps to meaningfully bolster the recovery. However, stocks did close well off their lows. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index slid 63 points, or a third of a percent, to 18,952. The benchmark index was down as much as 1.6% at the low of the day. 
The tech index dropped a third of a percent, recovering from losses of as much as 2.6% earlier in the session. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index was almost unchanged at 3,199. The Nasdaq Golden Dragon Index of US-listed Chinese shares closed 0.7% higher, that's its first gain in four sessions, after China vowed to treat private companies the same as state-owned enterprises, according to a joint statement from the party's central committee and the state council on Wednesday. And as a result, futures markets are pointing to a small gain of 20 points, or 0.1% for the Hang Seng at the open. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests who are scattered all over the world this morning. We find our regular Thursday commentator, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, over in Greece. Thank you for staying up so late for us, Andrew. Oh, the things I do for my friends. <clears throat> we do appreciate it. And in Australia, we find Alex Frew McMillan, who's a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com. Morning to you, Alex. I suppose I should say good day, but uh, yes, good morning. Yeah, good day to you. Well, let's start talking about inflation, uh, inflation, an exciting topic to talk about when you're sitting in Greece and Australia. UK inflation eased more than expected to a 15-month low of 7.9% in June and slightly below the market consensus of 8.2%. That was mainly due to a slump in fuel prices. Services inflation eased to 7.2% in June from 7.4% in May. And the core rate, which excludes volatile items such as energy and food, eased to 6.9% from May's 31-year high of 7.1%. So headline inflation, services inflation and core inflation all lower, but both all the rates well above the Bank of England's 2% target. And uh, the Bank of England monitors closely both core and services inflation uh, to decide on domestic price pressures and on interest rates. And over in New Zealand, we had some inflation data there as well. The annual inflation rate in New Zealand rose 6% in the second quarter from a year ago, and that slowed for the second straight quarter, um, following a 6.7% increase in the first quarter. That was the lowest reading since the last quarter of 2021, though prices there um, are still increasing at rates not seen since the 1990s. So, Andrew, panic over, isn't it? Uh, We're seeing uh, disinflation now. Inflation seems to be slowing all over the world isn't it? And markets getting very excited now at uh, the fact that they seem to have avoided uh, a recession. Well, there are two things uh, to, I, I imagine, to understand here. It is, uh, I'm going to point there, they're absolutely incredibly obvious, and that is inflation. It's still, it's much higher than uh, the desired uh, state rates, the desired government rates. Okay, in, in UK, 7.9 as opposed to to a 2%. The fact that inflation is uh, decelerating doesn't at all merit the word deflation in the air because if the words have got any meaning, deflation means when inflation is, is, is moving in negative rates, not in positive rates. Could it be called but disinflation? That, Could it be called disinflation? Uh, disinflation, yeah, but even that, it's, it's a quite a loaded thing. Disinflation, I have no idea. I, actually, genuinely, <clears throat> I have no idea what disinflation means. I know what inflation means. I know what deflation means. And disinflation means, I imagine, lower inflation. Well, if we have lower inflation, yes, that's good news. But again, you know, boringly, it is well above target rates. Now, whether target rates 
are sensible or are achievable or they make any sense in inflation maintaining uh, such a persistence absolute levels, uh, we have to glance over our soldiers quickly to UK, sorry, to United States, where about two months ago, inflation well, was well in excess uh, of uh, the actual interest rates. Inflation was above 5%, was 6% and over. And now, wow, it fell down to 3%. Mm-hmm. So inflation can come down quite quickly. So I, okay, of course, United States is not UK, it's not New Zealand, it's not Japan, uh, but things can happen and can happen quite quickly. So I'm taking a deep breath. In the case of UK, what I'm particularly interested in is what's happening to food inflation, because food inflation is a really an aching, numbing point uh, in the public discussion in UK of uh, what is happening actually to the purchasing power of the population with inflation rates 18% plus and over. It, that's what I think I mentioned this last week, isn't it? That's what consumers notice, isn't it? They don't really care that um, inflation is down, uh, you know, 20 basis points or whatever. What they notice is, my goodness, the price of this loaf of bread is twice what I was paying for, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. So they notice the absolute level of things. And as far as they're concerned, things are much, much higher uh, than they were if you go back to maybe the start of the pandemic. And Peter, I don't want to take too much time on that. And yes, we actually pointed out that, as you say, if the loaf of bread is twice as expensive, the fact that it, the, the rate of its increase is falling is really relevant. Mm. Uh, for it to go back to where it was a year ago, then we will definitely we need to have deflation. In other words, negative price of inflation. So and that's not going to happen either. Yeah. Alex, what are your thoughts here? Is this something to cheer? I mean, it does. At the very least, we can say maybe it looks like that inflation has peaked, or is it even too early to say that? Look, I mean, I, I agree. The UK rate is absolutely crazy, honestly, and still way, way too high. Food inflation at seventeen point three percent. Yeah, overall inflation just below eight percent is still incredibly high. I think besides food, people have really noticed their mortgage going up as well um, and rent going up if they rent. So those things are also uh, incredibly punishing. And uh, food rising also tends to punish worse the people who can least afford it, right? Because we we all have to eat and we all have to buy food. So, um, you know, people who don't have high disposable incomes uh, are feeling the pinch the most there. Um, and uh, I think it causes a lot of suffering and is a really big political issue, which is why you see politicians getting on the case so much. Um, yes, overall, it's good news that all around the world, almost, um, inflation uh, is easing. And I think uh, Andrew is correct. Uh, disinflation might be a bit of a misleading term. Deflation is a punishing situation to get into that Japan experienced for almost, uh, you know, better part of three decades. And that's disastrous for an economy. And uh, nobody is really in uh, deflation yet, although China perhaps could be entering it. Um, and uh, that can lead to a very negative economic spiral. But uh, I think it's good news that prices aren't rising as fast as possible. But in the West and in Australia and in New Zealand, and even in India, prices are still rising too quickly. Um, and, and, you know, the only good news is that perhaps it has peaked. And I'm not sure you could even say it's under control yet, but it seems to be coming under control. And therefore, maybe central banks will not 
um, overreact or, uh, you know, we will we'll see the effects of their rate rises filter through, you know, in quarters to come because those kinds of things take time to have an effect. But um, the markets um, are sort of assuming or investors are sort of assuming that the the central banks have pulled off what they thought may be impossible yeah. earlier on in the year, which is that um, there's going to be a soft landing and uh, they can avoid a deep recession. Goldman Sachs has cut its 12 month recession odds to 20 percent. Janet Yellen says she sees no recession at all now um, coming in the coming in the, the US. So do you think they're right? Have have the central banks pulled it off? I mean, so far, so good. Uh, it's been tricky. It does seem like the U.S. economy in particular is resilient and, and hardy um, and and may not enter recession, as many people predicted at the start of this year. So they're mainly talking about the U.S. economy there, I think. Um, U.K. and Europe is in a different situation and may, may well enter recession in Europe. Um what constitutes a, a recession in emerging markets? Um, you know, technically, it's still two quarters in a row of, of declining growth. But even if you see sort of disappointing growth in China or, or India, um, that's still at a relatively high rate, um, that can be considered very disappointing. So, uh, you know, Lombard <coughs> estimated that the real rate of growth in China now is is 4.2% um, rather than the, the figure that they actually cited. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, it does seem like a, a, recession, a technical recession has been averted in most places and particularly the U.S. Do, do you think that's the case, Andrew? Do you think, I mean, it's not in the case in Europe, is it? Because uh, several countries there are in recession. But um, in, in the U.S., have they pulled it off? Um, again, oh, God. Sorry, Peter. But... Uh, you know, I'm a very, I'm a, I would like to call myself an existentialist economist and follow Zappo and Sattel, who was not an economist, but he said something very interesting. He says words are very important because that's the only thing we have. Hang on a minute. A recession really means two quarters back to back of negative growth. That's all. Mm. Okay, so to say that the United States has avoided recession means that what? That the United States in the foreseeable future is not going to grow on a back-to-back, quarter-on-quarter negative growth rate. And I'm afraid, listening to that, the almost hilarious comment that came out of Goldman Sachs, you know, I don't like uh, talking ill of my fellow economists, 20% chance, that's meaningless. You know, in a year's time, the American economy, either it will be growing at a positive rate or it will be growing at a negative rate. It will not be growing 20% (laughs) at a negative rate. This 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 is, I have no idea what that means. In a year's time, we may have a 30% chance of something happening in the American economy. Uh, uh, probabilities are simply defined and measured in a completely different way. So let's keep those out. Uh, hence, have we avoided or have we not avoided simply means that when I look at the pace at which the American economy is growing, I do not see any real reason why Okay, it will grow back to back by negative rates. And incidentally, I absolutely dislike quarterly rates annualized. So even that for me, it's it's completely Mm -hmm. meaningless. But anyway, at least it's an agreed definition of recession. 
even if um, we can't sort of define it, um, markets or investors seem to be getting a bit euphoric about it. And if they look at you, look at the equity markets, they're sort of rallying quite hard now on the, on the fact that they believe that the Fed um, has pulled it off. Bond yields are falling. The US dollar um, is falling. The only thing is we still have this very inverted um, yield curve, the, the, the yield curve spread between 10 year and two years at a 40 year low. Um, but apart from that, um, in, investors are assuming that the, the Fed has done it. Now, I prefer to boringly bow my head and listen to what Paul has said. And unless I misinterpret that either, okay, misinterpret that as well, or decide that his definition was not right enough, which I'm not, he said they're going to increase interest rates again. Mm. Words, they say no reason whatsoever, in fact, that that's the last. They may not do it next month. Okay, they might say the timing might be, might be different. But uh, till the end of the year, they're still are looking for perhaps two 25s. Mm. So, you know, well, you know, I, I don't want to cheer up, but uh, that's, as they say, don't fight the Fed. Uh, there are a few times that it is worth fighting the Fed if there is a very strong positive reason why. And the reason why, why I reckon the Fed is not going to stop from increasing is to make quite sure that the 3% is going down to 2% and stay there. Now, it's not just a matter of hitting the target, it's making quite sure that it stays there. That's the tricky part. Mm. Uh, Alex, the, the markets, they seem to be diverging again from the Fed, don't they? The Fed is saying, if you look at its dot plots, uh, two more rate, rate, uh, rate hikes this year. Markets are now saying just one, and then they're going to start cutting in January. Yes, I mean, the nature of markets is, equity markets, is that they're going to front run or attempt to front run changes. Um, and, you know, they're, they're predictive and, and are, are trying to anticipate what's going to happen. So um, it does look like even if there are further rate increases, they will be few and far between, I think we can literally say. So um, it does seem like the Fed has done with its rapid raising of rates. Um, and while there might be one or two small increases to come, I mean, that would mean that rates are near their peak if they're not quite at them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, NASDAQ is now up, you know, if you look at uh, – one-year uh, rate, it's, it's 22.6%. So it's actually um, done better in the last year than, than um, Nikkei and, and Topics, which had been sort of leading the way this year. So um, tech stocks have really bounced back with a fury. Um, and, uh, and, and, yeah, that, I, I wonder how far something like, you know, NVIDIA has, has to run that's, uh, you know, sort of also benefited from, from this surge in interest in, in AI and the kind of chips that they develop that go into those um, those machines and systems. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it does seem like U.S. investors are predicting that, that, that the U.S. will avoid recession and, and avoid a large amount of further rate increases. Andrew, I wonder, though, if um, maybe investors are celebrating a bit too early and, and the, the economy's sort of run of good luck is, is going to come to a sharp end because I can see some things that are a bit worrying, like manufacturing. I mean, that in several places around the world is in recession, isn't it? There is a manufacturing recession going on, but economies are being held up by the services side. Europe has sort of slid into a mild recession earlier this year. And now China, um, it, it's sort of much anticipated rebounders has run out of steam and, and there's potentially deflation there. there there are some warning signs aren't there before people start celebrating about uh, the glo global economy and 
rather than, you know, China, in a sense, it's an incredibly good economic example because uh, I can think of uh, uh, several points where I will be ticking them and saying not only they are growing negatively, but there are really no signs, in fact, of increasing. One of my favorite ones is the index of uh, new home prices in 70 big Chinese uh, uh, cities where the the rate has been zero to negative for nearly now for nearly something like 14 months and also on top of that we just had the, the announcement of two separate statements of uh, 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 policy making bodies in China of uh, counter recession in inverted commas or reboosting the economy uh, 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 policies not a great deal on promise there, but a relatively few on specific policy details, but nonetheless a statement. And also something that I found very interesting, both the State Council and uh, the Communist Party came out with statements on the importance of supporting the private sector of the economy. So if one listens to the authorities, they are telling you that they are planning actively to mm. reboost the economy, and therefore, yes, there is something there to, to, to be worried. In other words, I don't need to sit down and just look at my numbers. I also listen to what uh, policymakers are telling me. And I think you, you're referring there to that 11-point plan, aren't you, which the Commerce Ministry came out with a couple of days ago to try and boost consumer spending, particularly correct, by correct, getting correct. households to buy more goods for their homes and to refurbish their homes. But I'm wondering, when I, when I look through that... Um, it sounds nice, but I, I didn't see what was in it, which was actually going to either give people more money in their pockets so that they could go out and spend or give households any reason, really, as to why they should should go and do it other than, you know, we want you to. Yeah, 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 exactly. This is exactly what I referred to. It was it was long on promise and short on uh, on actual plans. But this is not unusual for Chinese policy uh, documents in the sense they tend to be exhortatory, okay, to resolutely do something. And then, of course, they will be doing, uh, and I imagine they will be bringing out a series of measures. So I prefer to see this as a, as a relatively change in the overall attitude, namely, yes, we are having a problem, and yes, we're observing it, and yes, we're going to do some measures, but please wait till the details are out. So I'm not, I'm not highly critical of that. And I like the fact that both the Communist Party uh, and, and in inverted commas, uh, the government, state council, are saying that uh, the private sector should and would be playing a much more important role in this part of the recovery. Mm. Alex, what, what did you think of some of these announcements? First of all, the 11-point plan that came out from the, the Commerce Ministry. Clearly, the government yeah. has to do something, doesn't it, to stop the economy sliding into deflation. Otherwise, you know, the, the, the economy is going to be in a pretty serious situation. But did, does this 11-point plan do it? No, it doesn't. And it um, combines two sort of classic elements that the, the Beijing leadership love, which is a grand plan. It's a blueprint, and it's got numbers. It's got 11 of them, 11 points. So they've really turned the dial up to 11 on that one. Um, and uh, and are sort of hoping that talking about uh, uh, talking the economy up is, is going to make it work. But, I mean, I, I just wrote a, a story looking at where investors should turn other than China in Asia since it seems like, uh, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party and, and officials in the government are correctly worried and very worried about the state of the economy there. 
Um, yeah, Lombard described this as happy talk, pretty much, that uh, doesn't seem to have any concrete steps taken towards reform or, uh, or making changes. So um, I, I don't think it means much. Uh, I think it is indicative, though, that the Beijing leaders are very worried about the state of the economy. And you could say that there is a, a mental recession going on in China, even if there have been two quarters of uh, negative growth always strikes me as funny, but uh, two quarters of the economy shrinking, um, uh, declining. And uh, I think they are very worried about it because, uh, as Andrew just said, some industries like the real estate industry definitely are really in, in recession if you look on, at, at that industry in particular. Mm. Um, and that is often defined as being the most important industry or the largest industry in, in China and the number one place where people tend to invest their household wealth. So if their prices uh, and the value of their homes is going down or they're unable to make money or, or have confidence in investing that way, that sort of filters through to consumer confidence, to all kinds of things. Um, and I, I think uh, business owners as well, after the sort of attack on the private sector that came um, under Xi Jinping's plan for common prosperity, I think the private sector is also very concerned about how committed the Chinese Communist Party is to, to really supporting the private sector. Mm. Um, they always put it on a par with state-owned enterprises and sort of say, well, these are the three pillars, you know, government, state-owned enterprises, and the private sector. But they always cite the private sector third. But isn't isn't it ironic that you know now the uh, the party's central committee and the state council is saying we're going to treat private companies the same as state-owned enterprises? When over the last three years they've shrunk some of the biggest um, you know uh, private companies by about three quarters in terms of their in terms of their valuation. So you know that some of these now are not left in a particularly great state to to go and compete, are they? And they say that, and it just isn't true. It's not true. They won't treat private companies the same as state-owned enterprises at all. Mm. The state-owned enterprises will still get preferential rent lending rates. They'll still have subsidies. Uh, they'll still uh, be, you know, considered big employers that are too important to fail. Uh, whereas, you know, if you're a small property private a property developer, you know, uh, good luck to you. Um, we're not going to support you. So. Um, uh, just simply not true. Well, what do you make of this, Andrew? The, the the promise to treat private companies on a par with state-owned enterprises. Um, clearly, they you know they're listening to foreign investors, aren't they? Who who list this as one of their concerns? The the, the crackdown on private companies and the damage that's been done to them in recent years. Yeah, actually, I tend to have a slightly more sanguine view here. Yes, to the extent that uh, now the party that. Uh, uh, needs everything, every man to pull on the oar the private sector is, is invited to. But uh, the three years back experience of squeezing uh, the private sector, actually we have to be very fair here, they squeezed only a section of the tech sector, and this was not the tech sector that made computers or produced uh, software, it was a tech sector that had to do with uh, social media or social relationship media. It had to do with uh, uh, 
uh, e-retailing and and e-marketing. And this was the, the areas that they got squeezed. You know, it was the tech sector in China that say those was Huawei, for example, was never put under under the hammer. And Huawei actually makes things. Okay, but Alibaba was put under the hammer and Alibaba didn't make things. It did it just made services. And yes, their squash uh, was uh, was uh, was uh, was highly selective, as opposed to broad. And at the time, I was quite upset by the notion that the Chinese are ruining their tech industry because technicness is incredibly multifaceted and varied. I said, there are guys that are making things, okay, and there are guys that are simply, simply, I said, uh, uh, writing programs. And the two things are completely different. There's mm. part and parcel of the same overall sector, but not the sector itself. So, uh, yes, it is interesting that uh, they are going now, so to speak, cap in hand to the private sector. And uh, as we all three of us have been saying, uh, please, can we see the details now? This is very nice. Okay, uh, we would love to marry you and we'll say, yes, can we please have the date and the wedding ring? <laughs> I'm wondering if they're doing uh, this. I think, uh... Sorry, Alex, carry on. I was just going to say, I mean, I think if you ask companies that are in the after-school tutoring industry or the the video game industry that actually make video games, they would say that it's not true that they only targeted uh, these platform economy companies uh, as uh, as they're described in China. So after-school tutoring was destroyed overnight as an industry, um, torpedoing you know uh, billions of dollars in in market value for investors, and they didn't issue new licenses for video games for around 18 months. So um, those are people who really make things in the tech sector. And they were heavily impacted. And if you're in the real estate industry uh, making buildings, I think you would also disagree that they've only targeted uh, platform economy companies. So um, I, I think it was sort of like a random uh, assortment of industries that tended to get attacked, and that's what scared people. And uh, President Xi definitely was espousing some Leninist or very Marxist ideas about the need for the redistribution of wealth and uh, and he sort of backed off that kind of rhetoric now that uh, it proved to be destabilizing. And, and now, now they are coming cap in hand and saying, you know what, we'd really like you guys to help us out now, uh, private sector. Mm-hmm. I, I presume it's coming because, you know, the export sector um, has been damaged quite badly by all these sanctions. The Commerce Ministry was admitting that basically on Wednesday. It was saying foreign trade now faces an extremely severe situation. And what it described as non-economic factors were growing and interfering with the current, uh, the country's foreign trade. That was coming from the head of the ministry's external trade department yesterday. Yes, well, I, mean, I, I think... Trade is, is a problem, and then uh, I'll let Andrew speak. But uh, I think they're certainly concerned about trade, and they're concerned about business and consumer confidence as well. Andrew, now weaponizing trade relationships is it is unbelievably old news, and perhaps the Chinese should also point out that until very recently they had quite strict controls on importation of uh, coal and iron ore from Australia. The same thing with Australian wines, which was part and parcel of. Uh, Political impetus. So, in other words, countries such as United States employing uh, tariffs, and why we go back to Trump time, and we're talking about six years ago, seven years ago, eight years ago. Okay, as the, the weaponization of trade, this is absolutely nothing new. So, also, 
of course, we will point out that the Chinese also, where necessary, will use will use trade weapons, okay, as part of uh, of, a, of a political initiative. So you know, well, I want to say the biblical expressions: "Men living in glass houses shouldn't be throwing stones." type of thing, or let the unseen throw the first stone. So this was a little bit perhaps, uh, let's say, politically insensitive, because China also participates in, uh, in, in this type of policies. And this is not meant to be a criticism, it's simply meant to be, that's the reality. Mm, okay, well, thank you very much. Very interesting thoughts there. You heard that Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory, Alex Frew McMillan, who's a freelance writer and Asia columnist for thestreet.com. <laughs> I'm joined now by Rushir Desai, who is a fund manager at Asia Frontier Capital. Morning, Rushir. Morning, Peter. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Now, when we spoke about three months ago, we reviewed for the first quarter of the year the performance of what are known as Asia's frontier uh, markets, um, and they looked like they were doing pretty well. Has that continued now into the second quarter and basically for the first half of the year? What's the performance looking like? Yes, that's that's right, Peter. The Asian frontier markets had a pretty good start for the year, and also for the first half of this year, they've had a very strong performance, actually. In fact, many Asian frontier markets have outperformed the region by a significant margin. For example, uh, Sri Lanka, which is which was a under, big underperformer last year, has seen a big bounce back this year, both in terms of in local currency and also in dollar terms. For example, in US dollar terms, Sri Lanka is up about 45% this year, and mm-hmm. markets yeah. like Vietnam and Kazakhstan are up about 17% in dollar terms as well. So very strong start across the board for Asian frontier markets and I think the key reason for this is one obviously because I think in general global markets took a bit of a hit last year with the war in Ukraine and the high, the high commodity prices and high interest rates and high inflation. Uh, but I think these 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 factors are now kind of uh, softening out. You know, you're seeing inflation coming off, interest rates are peaking out or being cut in some of our markets and that's led to a big re- re-rating in all our markets pretty much across the board. When you look at a market like Sri Lanka, it will probably surprise people that its equity market has done so well, given the very well publicized problems um, that, that Sri Lanka's had, and it's had to be bailed out uh, by the IMF. It had a big debt. It's still got a big debt problem, hasn't it? But is it, is it performing because people see th- things as improving now following that IMF bailout? So people are looking more ahead for the, the potential? Uh, right. So a couple of things uh, or a couple of reasons why Sri Lanka has done well this year. So one is obviously the fact that Sri Lanka's market took a big hit last year, both in local currency terms and dollar terms. The rupee saw a big depreciation. Uh, there were a lot of uh, outflows from the domestic market as well. Uh, but and that, that led to very, very attractive and cheap valuations. For example, at the end of last year, the entire Sri Lankan market was trading at about a P of about four and a half times, which so was extremely low. I would say it's an all time low for Sri Lanka. So the, so, the, so the triggers were in place and the triggers were basically not just the IMF deal. The IMF deal came in probably March of this year. But besides that, I think more importantly, inflation was very high last year at about 50% for uh, the better part of last year. That's been coming down significantly over the last few months. In fact, inflation was at about 12% in the month of June and I, and I expect inflation to be in single digits uh, this month. That's led, that's led the Central Bank of Sri Lanka to start cutting interest rates because they raised interest rates very aggressively last year. So they've actually cut interest rates by 450 basis points in the last two months. So that's only led to a lot of you know, domestic funds moving into the equity market, which has led to re-rating. Uh, secondly, I think earnings are also bottoming out given what has happened with high interest rates and in general slow economy. So I think you'll see pretty strong earnings recovery in 2024 given the base in 2023 is low. And I think thirdly, more importantly, is that the tourism sector, which took a big hit not just last 
last year because of the issues in the country socially but i think since 2019 the the tourism sector has not had a chance to recover because of the easter sunday attacks and then you had the pandemic so you had three or four years of pretty tough times for the tourism sector but that's coming back pretty strong now in fact in the first half of this year sri lanka has already gener- you know done about a billion dollars in revenues from the tourism sector and they'll do about 2 billion dollars this year which is still less than about 50% of pre-pandemic levels but if they can get back to about 5 billion dollars in the next two, you know about 18 to 24 months that's going to be a big macro boost for the country as well so overall, mm-hmm. overall all these factors have led to a rebound in sri lanka i visited sri lanka and i have to say if i would recommend a country in asia for people to go and to for, for a visit sri lanka would be top of the list because it really is a, a stunningly uh, beautiful country absolutely i think it's a, it's a, it's a it was a well-known tourist destination until you know until the pandemic and until 2019 but it's coming back pretty strong and you're seeing tourist arrivals not just from neighboring countries like india it's a pretty broad based uh, tourist arrival for, for sri lanka across across the board especially from western europe and the uk so you're seeing a pretty pretty strong rebound and i think uh, in general it's a very attractive destination which still needs to be marketed in a much better fashion and you're seeing flights and you know, flights return to to colombo as well so i think you'll see to uh, Sri Lanka as one of the hot hot tourist destinations I would say in the next 3 or 4 years. Mm. Now tell me about um interest rates because there's very much a sense now that inflation has perhaps peaked um uh, around the world certainly in the uh, in the US. Um we had that UK inflation data yesterday which we talked about um earlier and therefore um central banks can maybe start thinking about bringing an end to their 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 cycle of interest rate rises. What sort of impact does that have on the frontier markets? Well actually that was the key headwind for not just frontier markets but I would say especially emerging and frontier markets last you had a very aggressive and very hawkish fed which raised interest rates very aggressively you had a very strong dollar until maybe september of last year these are two big factors which always affect emerging and frontier markets pretty significantly and that really played out uh, last year as well but i think this year what you're seeing at least uh, in the last few months is obviously in the us inflation is has kind of peaked or in fact is coming down quite significantly and maybe the fed does one more hike next month but the consensus is that they're pretty much done with interest rate hikes and that's obviously given a lot of room for central banks i would say in emerging and frontier markets to kind of manage their monetary policies in a more confident fashion because if they know if they feel the fed is kind of done with the interest rate hikes and they can also manage their interest rate policies and also inflation across our markets is coming down quite significantly as i mentioned to you Sri Lanka's inflation is coming off you see inflation come off in places like Viet- in vietnam inflation is less than 3% so it's completely manageable and that's led the central bank in vietnam vietnam to cut interest rates by about 150 basis points in since april 2023 you're seeing inflation come off in, in central asia as well for example places like in kazakhstan and georgia uh, in fact georgia's central bank also cut interest rates by 50 basis points a couple of months ago so across the board what you're seeing is a trend of lower inflation and that's giving confidence to central banks to either cut interest rates or hold interest rates and i expect that going into 2024 you're going to see central banks across the universe start cutting interest rates because inflation is going to come down pretty significantly and that's going to be a big boost to equity valuations going forward Mm. Now, the other big theme around this region is the slowdown, the economic slowdown in mainland China, and maybe even uh, China slipping into deflation. I mean, consumer price inflation on the mainland is zero um, right now. Which frontier markets are most affected by the economic slowdown and which ones would you say are least af- um, affected? Right. I mean, that's a great question. But I think in general, if this China slows down significantly or more than what 
the market expects or what investors expect i think that will that will be probably a negative factor for pretty much a large part of the world because china's many countries largest trading partner or export market or import market uh, but i think within the asian frontier universe it depends on the country and also uh, the type of country for example mongolia which obviously borders china uh, depends on china for its commodity exports and commodity is mongolia's biggest uh, uh, biggest pro- product that they export and china is the biggest export market so obviously if china does see a bit of a slowdown or a higher slowdown than expected it could have a bit of an impact on mongolia but having said that i think uh, mongolia's exports or even commodity exports are growing from a very low base uh because they're just exploring for a lot of a lot of these commodities and secondly uh mongolia's exports to china got impacted very significantly last year because of china's zero covid policies so as china has reopened this year in fact mongolia has seen their exports recover quite nicely so far this year so it really depends on the way you look at it uh and also from a tourism perspective i think many southeast asian countries for example like vietnam and thailand and indonesia were depending a lot on the chinese uh, tourist revival uh this year especially post reopening in china to to you know for especially to help the tourism industries but that's obviously not happened uh for example vietnam used to receive uh in 2019 uh, 30% of the arrivals were from china but that's not recovered in a, in a significant fashion uh but over here again i would say that in vietnam as well you're seeing a lot of tourist arrivals from other countries besides china in fact vietnam's already got back to about 70% of pre pandemic arrivals which is pretty good given that they only reopened probably middle of last year so so besides you know despite china not doing well or china seeing a slowdown you're seeing other markets you know take take up take up the place of of china in many of these countries and in terms of which countries not impacted i would say a large part of our universe is really not impacted by a slowdown in china because many countries don't have significant trade or investment links with china compared to say uh, in other parts of southeast asia uh, for example central asia doesn't have that close trade links with china compared to say mongolia or uh, or vietnam or even southeast asia uh, for example georgia uh, most of the exports actually don't go to china they go to uh, the rest of the region like uh, the rest of central asian countries and the eastern european countries uh, their tourist tourist arrivals are more from eastern europe russia and central asia and turkey uh, so again well, yeah i would say georgia really stands out in terms of least having the least impact from slowdown in china Mm. And, and which frontier markets would you say are reasonably well insulated from increasing U.S.-China tensions, which is a, also a big theme? And, and I mean, in effect, what what you would say are, are, are not China play, because we've got quite a few investors these days who are asking for Asia ex-China um, exposure. Are there sort of frontier markets that sort of fit that profile? And 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 even if U.S.-China tensions um, uh, get worse, maybe are well insulated from that. I mean, I would I would answer this. I would give the answer in two parts to this question. One is, you know, the consensus among investors is China is slowing down. They've got a demographic issue. Uh, you know, economic growth will not be as high as what it was in the last decade, and and and, and so and things like that. So I think Asian frontier markets in general as a universe, I think, offer a good hedge or a good opportunity versus say China because these markets don't have a demographic issue. In fact, they're very young population. The median age in our markets is about twenty-seven. uh it's a large young population for example the population of vietnam is more than 100 million uh, in bangladesh it's about 165 million pakistan is about 220 million and it's young and it's growing so they want to consume more unlike china which has a demographic issue so it's completely opposite in terms of demographics in our markets secondly these countries have to spend much more on infrastructure compared to china there's uh, uh there's infrastructures lacking in most of these markets in terms of having modern or more de- developed infrastructure they have to spend a lot more on infrastructure which is again a growth driver for these markets and three there's reforms happening in these countries and they're going from a low base so outside the growth outlook 
the four hour markets is significantly stronger compared to say a market which is seeing uh, slower growth rates or which has seen uh, or seen slower growth rates compared to the past decades so i would say asian frontier markets offer a good opportunity from that angle and second the second part of the answer is i think in general from a manufacturing perspective uh, as a hedge against us china tensions i think asian frontier markets again offer a good opportunity because in fact as we've seen which is quite evident in the numbers vietnam has been the biggest beneficiary in asia from the supply chain shift in fact vietnam has seen significant foreign direct investments into its manufacturing sector which are meant for the export market coming in from companies who are based in in the in the mainland and that's happened across the board for example companies like samsung apple even chinese companies who supply to apple have moved their uh, production to vietnam as well so vietnam has is the prime beneficiary in asia from this manufacturing shift and is uh, and benefiting a lot from the us china tensions and also countries like bangladesh is actually benefiting from the supply chain diversification because of tensions between us and china or in general the west and china in fact bangladesh's garment exports have grown by about 10% in the last 12 months despite talk of global economic slowdown that's a that's a pretty good achievement you know if you look at the garment export growth for other markets like vietnam or some other countries the region they've been negative but bangladesh has shown has shown positive growth so also bangladesh benefits a lot so i would say asian frontier countries actually are benefiting one because their growth drivers are much stronger as at this point in time growing from a low base and also they're benefiting from the supply chain diversification and if you could pick out of your universe one market from the asia frontier um universe uh, asia frontier market universe what would your top pick be well I, again i want to answer this part in this question in two parts in the short term i think in the next 6 to 9 months or 12 months i think sri lanka sri lanka can really outperform uh, it's taken it's had a tough few years since 2018 and 2019 they not really the economy has not really had a chance to recover uh, the company's earnings have not had a chance to recover uh, so i think they go growing from a very low base all the triggers are in place they've got the imf deal they've announced the domestic debt restructuring uh, earnings should recover next year valuation the cheap and interest rates are coming down so all the triggers are in place for a, a strong a continued strong rebound in sri lanka over the next out say 6 to 9 months uh but longer term uh, i would say of course sri lanka has to uh, improve in terms of their, ma- their their macro economic position the reforms and things like that so i would say longer term with a 3 to 5 year view uh, vietnam would still be my top pick they are clear beneficiary in asia from the manufacturing shift uh, uh, in terms of the supply chain diversification uh, this year will be- see a bit of a slow economic growth because of the global slowdown but they can easily get back to about 6% plus gdp growth over the next 5 years uh, they have a strong demographics uh, improving infrastructure rising exports so and of course more attractive valuations compared to other asian markets so clearly vietnam is the key, is the, is the key market to watch out for in the long term rushia thank you very much indeed for coming in this morning that's rushia desai who is fund manager at asia frontier capital Thank you very much for listening today. Please take a look at my website peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com where you'll find a lot more information in my daily newsletter about the topics we've discussed in this episode. On tomorrow's program, I'll be talking with Francis Lund, the CEO of Geo Securities and John Schofield, managing director of Tempus Investments and with a view from Australia, is Toby Lawson, the CEO of Staten Partners. Please join me again tomorrow. Money Talk 